My name is Nicole Pitches and you are listening to the Reasonable Woman podcast, a legal podcast for all you law enthusiasts out there. Today we are talking about the Treaty of Nice, which only partially prepared the EU for the 2004 and 2007 enlargements. The Treaty of Nice will come to signify the moment a new EU was formed, with 27 member states rather than the old EU of 15. Sources for today include the treaties themselves, of course, websites from the European Parliament, and cvce.eu. As always, you can find these in the description box. Just before we start, I'd like to remind you all that the information contained in this podcast is general in nature and is provided for solely educational purposes. Any reliance on the information provided is done at your own risk. So, let's get cracking. Now, while the Treaty of Maastricht focused on increased economic integration within the Union and foreign policy, and the Treaty of Amsterdam focused on justice and home affairs, the Treaty of Nice was predominantly focused on the enlargement to the east of Europe to include CEECs, countries of Central and Eastern Europe, such as Estonia and Slovenia. New problems came with enlargement, especially the question of how the EU is going to function properly with so many members. Nice treaty negotiations happened around the same time Denmark had just voted against joining the euro, which reminded everyone that the integration process won't necessarily be smooth sailing and that uniformity might not be possible, especially as Denmark had previously already voted against the Treaty of Maastricht, only approving it after it was allowed to opt out of the defence and asylum policy. The reality was not everyone was going to take the same path of integration, emphasising the need for enhanced cooperation. For some political historical context, there was a bit of an institutional crisis going on. In March 1999, the entire commission resigned, and it was only two months later that a new commission was formed, leading the commission to be institutionally weaker during this time of treaty negotiations than its predecessors. Politically speaking, France was also going through an interesting event of its own, where its president and prime minister were from opposing political parties, making the two political rivals. Then there were growing disparities between France and Germany. As European integration was very much the focus at the time, a move towards federalism was supported by a former German Chancellor, Helmut Schmidt, the former French President, Valérie Giscard d'Estaing, and a former President of the European Commission, Jacques Delors. These guys proposed a federation of nation-states. In May 2000, the German Foreign Minister, Joschka Fischer, suggested an official proposal which asked for a federal structure, for example, quote, a president elected by universal suffrage and a two-chamber parliament, the structure nonetheless allocating responsibilities that reflected Europe's plurality of nations. This plan also suggested that certain member states should form a central core, and ultimately the proposal gained the approval of the German Chancellor Schröder. Overall, the German initiative received support across most of Europe, but failed to win over the French, who were, quote, much less federally minded. The French President Chirac, while accepting the idea of a Franco-German pioneer group, did not at all approve of the idea of a superstate, and instead proposed, quote, the joint exercise of certain aspects of national sovereignty. These tensions between Germany and France meant that, I quite like this next quote, they could no longer function jointly as the engine of European integration. Germany, of course, at this point was reunified and started establishing its central position in Europe, really advocating the Union's enlargement to the CEECs. France still believed it had a leading role in the Union due to its global policies and nuclear capability, although arguably its nuclear capability wasn't really so important after the Cold War. Relations between President Chirac and the former Chancellor Kohl chilled, and continue to do so with Germany's successor, Schröder. This was notably not improved when they disagreed over agriculture spending. 
Chancellor Schröder wanted to lessen Germany's contribution to the budget of the community, and France was having none of that. On the 10th of November 2000, a Franco-German summit was held in Wittel, which essentially concluded that they both disagreed with one another about vote weighting and the mechanism to calculate population size, and also about the number of commissioners. Germany was all for a big commission, whereas France wanted to reduce the numbers of commissioners for efficiency's sake. Germany's acceptance of a larger commission was only if there were increased powers for the European Parliament. But again, France was having none of that. With these two major leaders butting heads, other major players were also a bit stuck. So to sum it up, this is the situation. France had a left-wing prime minister and a right-wing president, and also held the presidency for the council. Due to the opposing political parties with opposing political ideologies, a real strategy couldn't really be formed. The president who was determined to have successful negotiations was then criticised as being, quote, arrogant and geared more to defending French interests than to seeking an overall satisfactory solution. The backdrop to the IGC wasn't looking too good. The IGC assembled in February 2000, attempting to address the problems that the Treaty of Amsterdam couldn't. If you remember from the previous episode, the Treaty of Amsterdam had lots of complicated protocols attached just so that it could get passed, but questions were left unanswered. These included the European's commission size and composition, the Council's weighting of votes and the extension of qualified majority voting, introducing the dual majority system. The IGC, which took place earlier than anticipated, was, quote, widely viewed as having been underprepared and with rushed quality, contrasting sharply with the previous negotiations of treaty reforms. A particularly sensitive topic during the Nice summit was state representation in community institutions, whether they be member states or those who are just about to join. How were these new member states to be represented in terms of counselling voting rights and number of commissioners, parliament members and representatives on consultative committees? As we learnt in the previous episodes, thus far treaties have managed to address these issues in the previous enlargements, but the EU was about to experience the largest enlargement to date, taking the number of member states from 15 to 27. In the IGC, the future of the EU was also questioned, as this proved to be impossible to clearly define. This, along with the enlargement questions, led to the Treaty of Nice being heavily criticised by certain member states who, quote, did not wish to see their influence diminished. However, addressing Europe's future was far too big of an ask due to the IGC's limited framework, with political unification and establishing of genuine political authority being the issues that needed to be addressed the most. This was also highlighted by the fact that the euro was already adopted and managed by the European Central Bank, but there was no authority that was actually responsible for the economic policy. So the European Council met in Nice on the 7th, 8th and 9th of December 2000. If I'm not mistaken, this is actually the longest European Council meeting to date, due to the fact it was so hard for everyone to agree, especially on institutional reform. The main topics for discussion were the Charter of Fundamental Rights, Enlargement, the Common European Security and Defence Policy, a new impetus for an economic and social Europe, a citizens' Europe, and external relations. The conclusions thereof included firstly, the proclamation of a Charter of Fundamental Rights, which would combine in a single text the civil, political, economic, social and societal rights laid down in a variety of international, European or national sources. The UK, however, opposed of the Charter of Fundamental Rights of the Union, and thus the Charter could not be incorporated into the Treaty of Nice, and so the announcement was only symbolic in nature. Secondly, the Council believed that the time has now come to lend fresh impetus to the process of enlargement. 
the council claimed the EU would be ready to take new member states by the end of 2002, so that they could take part in the European Parliament elections, they encouraged candidates to, quote, continue and speed up the necessary reforms to prepare themselves for accession, so as to be able to join the Union as soon as possible. Thirdly, the idea of a social Europe included creating a European social agenda, a strategy for employment, a strategy against social exclusion and all forms of discrimination, modernisation of social protection and worker involvement. Furthermore, there was a desire for a Europe based on innovation and knowledge, which involved improving the mobility of students and teachers, introducing the E-Europe 2002 action plan, and increasing research and innovation. The Council also called for better coordination of economic policies. And last but not least, the summit directly addressed the issue of Cyprus and stated strong support for the UN Secretary-General to achieve an overall agreement on the problem with the UN Security Council resolutions, as well as addressing relations with the Mediterranean and Western Balkans. Right, so we've actually addressed a lot of what the Treaty of Nice has changed or amended, but now I'll go into more of the contentious issues. Overall, the summit in Nice reached agreement on institutional questions, European Parliament seating distribution, flexible enhanced cooperation arrangements, EU fundamental rights, values monitoring and the strengthening of the EU judicial system. Deciding on the weighting of votes in the Council involved choosing one of the two following methods for defining qualified majority voting. A new system of weighting, which was actually just a modification of the existing one, or applying a dual majority of votes and of population. This last one happened to be proposed by the Commission with the full endorsement of Parliament, but the IGC decided to go ahead and choose the first one. This meant the number of votes increased for all member states, but the share accounted for by the most populous member states decreased. The previous 55% of votes fell to 45% when the 10 newest members joined, and to 44.5% on the 1st of January 2007. A so-called democratic safety net was introduced, whereby a member state can request verification that the qualified majority represents a minimum 62% of the total population of the EU. Regarding the composition of the Commission, since 2005 it is one commissioner per member state. The Council can decide unanimously on the number of commissioners and rotation system arrangements, so long as each commission reflects the demographic and geographic range of member states. The Treaty of Nice arranged the internal organisation so that the President of the Commission has the power to allocate responsibilities to the Commissioners and to reassign them during their term of office, and to select and determine the number of Vice Presidents. So, as we already know, the Treaty of Amsterdam set the maximum number of members of the European Parliament at 700. The Nice Treaty changed this composition, increasing the maximum number to 732. This was also so that the European Parliament could be used as a counterbalance to the new weighting of votes in the Council. In terms of the powers of the European Parliament, the Treaty of Nice enabled it, just the same as the Council, the Commission and the Member States, to bring legal challenges to the acts of the Council, Commission or ECB, based on grounds of lack of competence, infringement of an essential procedural requirement, treaty or rule of law infringement or misuse of powers. The European Parliament's legislative powers were increased through broadening the scope of the co-decision procedure by requiring the assent of Parliament for enhanced cooperation establishment in the areas already covered by the procedure. Furthermore, if the Council wants to adopt a position which could potentially risk a serious breach of fundamental rights in a member state, Parliament must be asked for its opinion on the matter. Reform of the judicial system was another outcome of the Treaty of Nice. The Court of Justice of the European Union was empowered to sit in various ways in chambers, which consists of three or five judges, in a grand chamber, 11 judges, 
or as the full court, which, if I'm not mistaken, is a judge of each member state as well as advocate generals, which the council can increase if it decides to do so. The court retained jurisdiction over questions referred for a preliminary ruling, but it was also able under its statute to refer to the court of first instance for types of matters other than those mentioned in Article 225 of the TEC Treaty. The powers of the court of first instance were increased to include additional categories of preliminary ruling, with the possibility of judicial panels being established by the council's unanimous decision. The Court of First Instance is actually now called the General Court, thanks to the Lisbon Treaty, which came into force on the 1st of December 2009, but we'll take a look at this treaty in the next episode. In terms of legislative procedures, while a considerable number of new policies and measures, 27 to be exact, now required qualified majority voting in the Council, the co-decision procedure was only extended to a few minor areas. Enhanced cooperation was already mentioned in the Treaty of Amsterdam, and the same went for the Treaty of Nice, containing general provisions applying to all areas of enhanced cooperation and provisions specific to the pillar concerned. However, the Amsterdam Treaty only provided enhanced cooperation under the first and third pillars, the Treaty of Nice encompassed all three. Under the Nice Treaty, referral to the European Council was no longer an option, the concept of a reasonable period of time was clarified, and Parliament's assent was now required in all areas where enhanced cooperation relates to a question covered by the co-decision procedure. While the Charter of Fundamental Rights was not formally adopted, a paragraph was added to Article 7 of the TEU to cover cases where a breach of fundamental rights has not actually occurred, but where there is a clear risk that it might. The Council, only after getting Parliament's assent and by acting as a majority of four-fifths of its member states, will determine the existence of this risk and will confirm the appropriate recommendations to the member state in question. And there you have it. I will be leaving you guys with this for today. As I mentioned earlier, there is so much more to learn about the enlargement process and about what the IGC got up to in the late 1990s and early 2000s. And it's truly fascinating. So I'll leave all the sources I found for this episode in the description box. I would highly recommend checking them out. In the next episode, we'll be talking about the Lisbon Treaty. Thank you so much for listening. And please feel free to shoot me an email should you have any particular topic you want to hear more about at thereasonablepodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, bye.